Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 14. Uh, The page in the Pew Bible is 923, if you'd like to turn there with us. Uh, The words will also be on the screen. Uh, Acts 14, verse 19 reads, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that though many tribulations we must, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. Well, I never cease to be amazed at the inexhaustible store of American history here in New England. Uh, last spring, while I was driving Joshua to a, a field trip for his class in western Massachusetts, we drove past the city of Lemonster, where the road is kind of flanked on either side with billboards announcing the birthplace of Johnny Appleseed. Now, I mean, most of us, I think, have grown up hearing the legend of Johnny Appleseed. I have to confess that up till that point, I didn't realize it was based on a real guy. I thought it was kind of like Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox, and then there's Johnny Appleseed, you know, with the pot on his head. Uh, but it was. It was based on a, on a man. Uh, there was a Johnny Appleseed. His name was John Chapman. was his real name. Born in 1774 in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Uh, his father was a Minuteman in the Revolutionary War. Served under George Washington. Uh, his mother died while he was very young. When he was 18, he and his little brother took off west. Eventually they were joined by uh, the rest of the family. And as with most legends, there is a little bit of fact and a little bit of fiction all kind of mixed up together in what we know about Johnny Appleseed. Uh, thanks in large part to Disney, we kind of have this idyllic picture of a, of a strangely clad, wandering nomad, you know, casting apple seeds like pixie dust everywhere he goes along the road and so on. And, you know, the part with the, about the shabby clothes and the apple seeds going, you know, carrying a bag of apple seeds wherever he went, that part's true. Uh, the part about spreading apples kind of willy-nilly randomly in open fields and along roadsides and streams, in quite in contrast to that, Chapman actually carefully selected his land and planted nurseries. Nurseries. He built fences around them to protect them from livestock And then he left those nurseries in the care of a neighbor who sold the trees on shares while he went and planted another nursery. And then he would return every two or three years to kind of check on the nursery, mend the fences, see how things were going. Well, when we as a church think about the great commission that Christ gave to his church, this call to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation, we often have this same kind of haphazard picture of apostles and missionaries wandering the roadsides and streams, just kind of 
sowing the seed of the gospel like pixie dust everywhere they went, randomly planting individual trees here and there, and then just moving on to a new area, planting more trees here and there, making more and more individual disciples wherever they happen to go. But when we look at the book of Acts, which shows us how the disciples began to carry out the Great Commission, we see a slightly different picture emerge. The apostles were not content merely to plant individual trees. They sought to establish nurseries. What, you know, when the seed of the gospel sprouted in new birth, they would gather those saplings together in community. They would build fences around them by entrusting carefully selected leaders to oversee them. And then they would return and check on them periodically to see how they're growing and to encourage them to bear fruit. In other words, the fulfilling of the Great Commission is more than making individual disciples. It means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. Establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. And that's true not just for the birth of the church that we read about in Acts. It's true not just for unreached areas of the world today. It's true today for neighborhoods and people in our own cities and towns. Church planting is central to the gospel's advance. And we see that in our passage this morning in Acts 14. So if you're not still there, I invite you to turn again to Acts chapter 14. The book of Acts picks up the story of Jesus where the gospels left off. The hinge between the gospels and Acts is the Great Commission. This call to go to all nations and make disciples. And so the gospels show us who Jesus is and what he came to do in establishing God's kingdom through his life, his death and resurrection. And the book of Acts shows us what Jesus is continuing to do through the spirit-empowered witness of his church. And so just as the Father sent the Son into the world, so Jesus sends his church into the world to make disciples of all nations. And the way that his disciples fulfilled that commission was not just preaching the gospel and making individual disciples. It was by preaching the gospel and gathering those disciples to start new churches. Ed Stetzer writes that the earliest churches obeyed the Great Commission by planting new congregations to carry out the assignments of discipling, baptizing, and teaching that would begin the multiplication process of planting more and more churches. And we see that really throughout the book of Acts, but it's really clear in our passage this morning, which is found in chapters 13 to 14, what we often describe as Paul's first missionary journey. So Paul sets out through Cyprus and Lycia and southern Galatia, uh, along with Barnabas. But, but before we get to our specific passage uh, in the middle of chapter 14, I want us to look briefly at the beginning of this journey, at the beginning of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. This is when Paul and Barnabas are sent out to go on this church planting, evangelizing mission. So chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, there's an interesting but easily overlooked fact here. Notice which church is sending Paul and Barnabas out. It's not the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch. And if you are thinking about the story of the early church, you need to ask yourself, well, where did that church come from? Because when Acts started, there was only one church, and it was in Jerusalem. Where did this church come from? Well, when the church was gathered in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts, despite this call to go to all nations, they kind of hunkered down and kept their head low. And it took a severe persecution of the church to finally wake them up and move them out. And that's one of the things that brought some of them to Antioch. One of the results of that persecution is you might call the unintentional planting of the church in Antioch. They went there seeking safety from persecution. The Holy Spirit met them there and birthed a new church out of it. And so you have this unintentionally planted church in Antioch. But notice now that as the Spirit continues to move, here's a new congregation that is now intentionally seeking to plant more congregations. The Holy Spirit leads them to send out Paul and Barnabas on this journey. And that journey eventually brings them to a city named Lystra. So they are traveling around, preaching the gospel, making disciples. They come to the town named Lystra. And as Paul is there, this is now in chapter 14, as Paul is there, he, one of the first things he does is he works a miracle. He restores the, the ability of a, of a crippled man to be able to walk again. And after he does that, things get awkward really fast. If you've ever seen Return of the Jedi, that scene where C-3PO stumbles into the Ewok village and they think he's a god and they start, you know, that's basically what happens to Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. So, you know, the crowds see this miracle and they conclude among themselves that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So chapter 14, verse 12, Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all of the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But things quickly turn even weirder in the opposite direction for them. When some of the Jewish opponents that they had run into in some of their previous cities follow them to Lystra 
and convince the crowds that instead of worshiping Paul, we should execute him. And so Acts 14, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. It ain't easy being a missionary, is it? But God is at work through this. God is at work through Paul. He preserves his life. I mean, they thought he was dead when they dragged his body out of the city. God preserves his life. And and what looks like a miraculous recovery, he's up and he's back to work making the gospel known the very next day. And as we come to chapter 14, verses 21 to 23, we see here what is really a nice summary of, of Paul's pattern of gospel ministry, which involves the intentional planting of new congregations. And so if you look again, 1421, Paul begins with evangelism, with preaching the gospel. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... So last week we we saw that uh, when we were talking about spiritual multiplication at kind of a personal ministry level, we saw how it begins with evangelism, with making the gospel of Christ known, announcing to people that there is a God in heaven who made us, who loves us, and who will judge us for our sin, and that this God sent his eternal son to save us from that judgment, to be our king and our Savior by giving his life for us on the cross that we would be forgiven if we will trust in him. So just as we start our personal ministry with evangelism, Paul starts his public ministry in each town with evangelism. He scatters the seed of the gospel. He plants new trees. But then notice what he does next. Instead of leaving these saplings as they are, and just moving on to the next town, disconnected and immature, <clears throat> he goes back through the cities that he just ministered to. <clears throat> Excuse me. He goes back through the cities that he just ministered to with the explicit purpose of encouraging the new Christians and establishing a leadership structure among them. Uh, So he organizes, basically, he takes these saplings and he organizes them into nurseries instead of random, isolated trees. Middle of verse 21. They return to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And, you know, if you if you kind of look at Paul's journey on a map, (coughs) excuse me. If you look at Paul's journey on a map, you can kind of see the angle that he takes that it would have been a lot shorter if he was just trying to get back to Antioch. There was a lot shorter route to take than backtracking through all of the different cities. But his goal wasn't just to get back to Antioch. His goal wasn't just to move on. His goal was to establish 
these new churches to ensure the long-term health and strength of the people he had seen come to Christ, that they might not just survive, but they might actually thrive and bear fruit for God as new communities of faith. And so he gathered them into nurseries, into churches for instruction and for oversight in the Lord. So you look again at what Paul is doing as he takes the risk of going back to the very cities that he was basically run out of at times. He goes back to them, and the first thing we see him doing is what I might call gospel encouragement. He's encouraging them in the faith of the gospel. So look again at verse 22. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. So if you think about it, Paul, when he's, you know, planting the seed, sowing the seed of the gospel, he's not planting a nursery on a lonely hillside out in the country that's just kind of safe and tucked away from all harm. He's basically planting urban gardens where there is danger on every side of these new congregations. There are false prophets who want to sow poor, you know, false teaching among them. There are wolves who would love nothing better than to come in and trample these new gardens and prey on the flock. And so Paul is trying to encourage them and warn them that there is going to be tribulation as a church. He wants to strengthen their souls, warning them about trial and tribulation. There's no reason that the same people who stoned Paul and drug him out to die won't do the same thing to some of these new churches. And they need to understand that, that the gospel he preached was not your best life now, but it was salvation from sin, relationship with God, and the hope of heaven. And that there was going to be suffering between now and then. That there was going to be a cost, just as there was a great cost for Christ who brought new life by dying, by suffering for us. And so he warns them and strengthens them, and he encourages them in the faith. He instructs them in the doctrines of the Christian faith. So he instructs them in the doctrines of the Christian faith that they need to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. They need to hold fast to the scriptures and to the word of God. That if they don't do that, that they, if they're going to hold fast, if they're going to survive and thrive, they need to hold fast to the teaching. They need to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus, to the word of God as it's revealed in the scripture. And so he encourages them in the faith. And it's the same thing he's doing later on when he's unable to visit these cities and writes them letters instead. So the letters that we have that make up a good chunk of our New Testament, that's Paul's gospel encouragement to these young churches to stay the course in the faith. But Paul does more than that. He does more than just encourage them. He actually establishes a leadership structure among them. He turns these new congregations into new churches. So look at verse 23. When he had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So think about that. Paul has seen people come to faith. He's encouraging them to stay the course in the gospel. But he's not just doing that. He's actually giving them a leadership structure that's going to guide and guard their long-term 
health. He's designating certain men within each new congregation as elders. And the role of an elder, as we see in other places of Scripture, so Acts 20 or 1 Peter 5 or 1 Timothy 3, the role of an elder is to shepherd the flock of God. It's to know who your flock is, to feed them with the word of God, to lead them according to the word of God, and to protect them from straying away or from wolves that might try and take advantage of them. And so he designates this leadership structure. He establishes elders and entrusts the care and oversight of the flock to each local congregation. And he entrusts each congregation to the Lord. So think about that. Paul is not setting up, you know, he's not in charge. He's entrusting this leadership to the local congregations and commending them to the Lord. He's going to continue to support and encourage them. He's going to come back and check on them, make sure the fences are still secure, encourage them to continue to bear fruit. But Paul's not in charge. He committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And that is a summary of Paul's pattern of gospel ministry. Tim Keller summarizes, Paul routinely organized his converts into churches in their own right, more than just loosely knit fellowships directly under his leadership. These churches had their own leadership and structure. When Paul began meeting with them, they were called disciples, verse 22. But when he left them, they were known as churches. Verse 23, to put it simply, the multiplication of churches is as natural to the book of Acts as the multiplication of individual converts. Fulfilling the Great Commission is more than just making individual disciples. It means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. So if that's so natural for the book of Acts and what we see happening there. Why does church planting feel so unnatural and awkward for so many churches today? Well, I think the first problem that we run into in thinking about how or why we might be involved in helping start new churches, the first problem we run into is the rampant individualism that we're simply accustomed to. Today, it's not simply that we question the necessity of new churches. We question the necessity of church, period. Especially among young people. You know, for some of us, we, we simply and honestly just don't see what the big deal is. We don't see the relevance or how it connects to real life. It feels boring and disconnected. For others who, who kind of question the necessity of church, maybe They've had a bad experience in the church. And so they're just, they're wary of being hurt again or being taken advantage of by someone. And so they just feel like it's safer to stay away. It's not uncommon to hear the phrase that, you know, I like Jesus, just not the church. The church is a bunch of hypocrites and so on. And they're generally right about that last point. The church is largely a bunch of hypocrites, people who are on a journey, imperfect sinners uh, who are growing and need to continue repenting and growing. And consequently, 
our evangelism practices reflect that kind of individualism in our haphazard way of scattering seed without any concern for gathering the plants into a new nursery. And as a result, you, you have uh, folks today who simply keep their Christian faith to themselves. They live an isolated life uh, of others who maybe kind of see their small group Bible study or their, their kind of community service group as their church or even a parachurch ministry like uh, Navigators or Crew or ISI, which are great ministries, but they're not meant to be the church or replace the church. But we also see this kind of mentality, this, if you might call it a low view of church, we also see it showing itself in Christians whose church attendance is sporadic or inconsistent at best. You're thinking, oh, he didn't just go there, did he? Oh, he did. He did. But you think about it, you know, gathering with God's people under God's word has somehow become optional for much of the church today. Why is that? Why is that? Or at least it's less important than things like recreation or kids' sports schedules or work. Things that we wouldn't dream skipping work for or wouldn't pull our kids out of school for, we, don't, we barely bat an eye at thinking I'm going to ditch on church for this. And just why? Why do we do that? What does that say about our value for Christ and his church, about our theology of what it means to gather as a family, as a community, under God's word and praise to God. Somehow we've allowed the church to become optional. And I think it's the same individualism that is kind of shaping us today. just encourage you to think about it. The reality is, biblically speaking, there is no such thing as a churchless Christian. There's no such thing. You cannot be united with Christ without being united with his body as well. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that I will build my church. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When he gives the great commission later in Matthew 28, the fact that he includes baptism as part of the great commission signals that he's talking not just about making individual disciples, but about gathering them together in a covenant community. He's building his church. God designed the church for our communion and our fellowship with him and with one another, for our care and our instruction, for our discipleship and for our mission, for our protection, and if necessary, for our rebuke and discipline. The church is a family. And the church is a missionary force. We are a gospel outpost of God's heavenly kingdom on earth. Representatives of his kingdom. The advance expression of God's new creation. As Francis Chan puts it, the church is life and death. It's God's strategy for reaching our world. Paul never evangelizes and disciples without also planting a church. Now, of course, we still live in a fallen world, which means that there is no such thing as a perfect church, nor perfect church leaders. Uh, we make mistakes, and we're going to continue to make more mistakes, though we pray we'd be humble enough to repent when we realize we're doing it. But there is no perfect church. 
And if you're looking for one, I'm sorry to disappoint. But not until the Lord comes back and puts us all back together will you find something that actually works the way it's supposed to. And yet the church is a community of love and of grace despite our dysfunction. Of love and grace despite our dysfunction. And you can't follow Jesus without submitting to the guidance and care of a local church. That was Jesus' design. We didn't come up with it. It was his design. It's for our good because we need one another. And it's for his glory as we show the world what Christ is like through our unity and love in the gospel. That's the design of the church. And so as we're making disciples, the church needs to be a priority in that. But even if you're convinced that the church is important in the gospel's advance, the idea of church planting, of starting new churches, might still feel awkward and maybe unnecessary. Why is that? Well, as researcher Ed Stetzer reflects on this trend, which he's been participating in and studying for decades, uh, he writes that over the last few decades, I have observed that the main hindrance for churches, denominations, and leaders engaging in church planting is fear. Fear. Churches, denominations, and leaders are afraid that church plants are too innovative, take too much sacrifice, are too difficult to cooperate with. And I might add, too expensive. And I think Stetzer's correct. I think fear is probably our biggest hurdle when we think about church planting. I know it is for me. Uh, The bottom line is that church planting isn't easy and requires death to self. It requires sacrifice. And that's scary. It messes up the status quo when you start doing something new. Uh, Tim Keller outlines three critical mind shifts that churches have to make in order for church planting to become normal and natural for them rather than sporadic and traumatic, which is usually what it feels like. Three mind shifts. Think about these. First, you must be willing to give away resources and lose control of your money, members, and leaders. And that'll kill a board meeting right there. I mean, that's just hard. Second, you must be willing to give up some control of the shape of the ministry itself. Third, you must be willing to care for the kingdom even more than for your tribe, your church, your denomination, your tradition. And that's hard to think about. It's hard to think about. And it's even harder to do. Why not, why not just focus on churches that already exist? You know? We already have plenty of churches that have lots and lots of room in them. So let's get them filled before we go off starting something new, right? After all, won't a a new church simply just take people from churches that are already hurting and just weaken everybody? Can't an established church be effective in evangelism without needing to start new ones? And, of course, the answer to that last question uh, is yes. You know, established churches can and must be effective in evangelism and discipleship. I think we need to keep in mind that uh, you know, leading people to Christ 
and connecting them with an established church is just as much at the heart of the Great Commission as starting new churches. That's not, you know, varsity and junior varsity or anything like that. Planting new churches doesn't give congregations like Westgate a pass on disciple-making. Our mission doesn't change just because the church is growing older. But we would be arrogant to think that we're the only church God can use to reach the Metro West, right? Or even that the number of gospel-preaching churches in the Metro West currently is enough to reach the population of the Metro West with the gospel. We would be arrogant to think that. And we would be foolish to overlook the fact that new churches are six to eight times more effective at reaching the unchurched than established churches are. Studies confirm that the average new church gains one-third to two-thirds of its new members from the ranks of people not attending any worshiping body, while churches over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 to 90% of their new members by transfer from other congregations. So new churches are simply better positioned to reach the unchurched. And we might kind of like, we might not like that statistic. It might make us feel, you know, well, why can't we do a better job? And, and hopefully it challenges us to think about that. Uh, but it is a reality, and it's largely a matter of focus and flexibility. When a new church is started, there is often a laser-like focus that keeps every ministry and activity closely aligned with the core mission of making disciples for Christ in a specific area. There's also an acute sense of urgency in a church plant. I participated on the core team of a, of a plant very briefly in Chicago before we moved out here. But there's a sense of, an, of urgency in evangelism because the reality is if people don't come to faith and, and the church doesn't grow, you're going to die. Like this thing isn't going to be around in 12 months if God doesn't show up and do something. There's urgency. Church plants tend to work harder at understanding the culture of the people that they're engaging. And they're often more flexible at, at shifting a strategy if necessary or two. And as communities and neighborhoods change over time, new churches are often easier for new generations, new residents, and new ethnic groups to break into and feel at home in because there's something new about it. Now again, the mission of a church doesn't change as the church gets older. But it does get more complicated. And that's another one of the factors that why we see church plants being more effective at reaching the unchurched. The longer a church is around, the easier it is for that church to become more inwardly focused, tending more and more to the needs of congregants and guarding more and more the way we've always done it. It's just a reality. And you can think, even you know, some of you were here for the beginning of Westgate 40 years ago. And you can think about the difference in feel and focus from those early days of evangelism and how that has shifted over the over generations. It's just and, and in some ways that's normal and to be expected as churches get older. Because gospel ministry is not just about planting something new, 
It's also about helping what is planted mature and bear fruit. And that maturing process often brings with it, you know, a stability that, that newer churches would die to have or, or resources or a depth of wisdom that's just enviable. So it's, it's not an us versus them kind of thing. But the fact remains that fruit, even as, as an older church grows mature and bears fruit, that fruit is meant to reproduce. That fruit has a seed in it that's meant to be sown and reproduce and multiply. And one of the ways that established churches can remain vibrant into their growing years or revitalize if they find themselves having gone sterile is to see new churches not as a threat but as an encouragement and an opportunity. They're an encouragement because they remind older churches that the gospel still works. That people are still coming to faith. Even though we might not have seen that for a while or felt like that, that the gospel still works. That lives really are changed. So it encourages us. And it's an opportunity in two ways. First, it's a way for established churches to participate in the advance of the gospel by planting newer churches in newer areas to reach newer generations. And then second, it's an opportunity as a catalyst for renewing and revitalizing an established church to, to learn what we can from the plants that are, that are at work now, from the sharpness of their focus, from the urgency of evangelism, which is something I feel Westgate can grow in, and from the uh, cultural insights that new churches can provide. They're doing a lot of work and research, understanding what are the cultural idols of today, what are the uh, and, and how how are we communicating the gospel in such a way that that people are going to understand it more clearly? So, new churches shouldn't be seen as a threat to churches like Westgate, but an encouragement and even an opportunity. That doesn't mean that when new churches arise, uh, that they won't be costly to establish churches, or that they won't affect some of the churches in the area. They really probably will. Uh, But as Keller explains, when we lose two or three families to a church that's bringing in a hundred new people who weren't going to any other church before, we have a choice. We must ask ourselves, are we going to celebrate the new people that the kingdom has gained through this new church? Or are we going to bemoan and resent the families that we lost to it? We have to, we have a choice to make. In other words, our attitude to new church development is a test of whether our mindset is geared to our own institutional turf or to the overall health and prosperity of God's kingdom in the city. It's not a competition. It's not a competition. Old and new churches should and must work together to reach new communities with the gospel and to pass the gospel on to new generations in communities that already have a gospel witness. As Keller summarizes it, vigorous church planting is one of the best ways to renew existing churches in a city 
as well as the single best way to grow the whole body of Christ in a city. So what does that mean for us at Westgate? Well, this is a bit of an odd sermon in that you would expect at this point for me to roll out some sort of plan that Westgate's going to like plan to church. I don't have a clue what this means for Westgate right now. Just being honest. I don't have a plan. Uh, I don't know exactly what it means. I do know that church planting is biblical. And I do know that it's healthy. And so I want to start the conversation. That's, that's my goal. It's just help us build a category for gospel ministry that includes this idea of either investing in or starting new churches. It's, some, it's part of our vision statement. It's something that our denominational uh, you know, region is committed to. It's a conversation the elders have begun having. But it's something that I want all of us to begin kind of thinking and dreaming and praying about. I think it starts by asking what Westgate can learn from a church planting mentality. You know, to look again at our vision and our mission and, and to tighten and bring focus and clarity to that. To fuel an urgency for evangelism. If we're not reproducing and multiplying as a congregation, we don't have a whole lot to actually reproduce in new congregations. And so gospel-making ministry or disciple-making ministry is, is something we should be encouraged to feel an urgency toward. Uh, we can learn uh, other things as well. Uh, so I don't know exactly what it looks like. You know, uh, What if it means that we begin supporting some of the local church plants in our area? You know, I know several men who are planting gospel-preaching churches throughout Boston and New England. Uh, godly men who are... Uh, planting gospel-preaching churches, not for the sake of stealing from existing churches, but for the sake of making disciples among the lost. Got friends in Boston and Brookline and Belmont and Cambridge and Providence. You know, we could begin spending more time with some of them. And what does this look like? Or maybe maybe uh, getting involved in somehow. I have one friend, a man named Jay Mudd, who's going to be planting a church in Natick before too long. Now, what if we took two or three families from Westgate and sent them to be part of that core team for that church plant? Now, that's a bad model for church growth, especially when you're running behind budget, as we are right now. But that's a great model for kingdom growth. And that's what we're called to. And I have to believe that God will honor that when we give sacrificially of ourselves. You know, what if it means that, uh, what if the result of the regional model that we're developing right now, uh, the, you know, getting people together in the, in the northwest and the east and central and south and west, what if one of the results of this regional model is that some of these regions become the seeds for future churches? Wouldn't that be awesome? I think that would be exciting. Now, it would change the face of Westgate. The status quo would no longer remain. And that's a little scary. And it's, it's honestly a little sad because I don't want to lose any of you. You're all a special part of this church. No one's dispensable. But at the same time, what's the purpose of gospel ministry? What's the purpose? Are we willing 
to give away resources and lose control of our money, our members, and our leaders? Are we willing to give up some control of the shape of the ministry itself? Are we willing to care for the kingdom even more than our specific little tribe or corner? Is New England, is the gospel's advance in New England worth some of those risks, some of those sacrifices? Fulfilling the Great Commission is more than making individual disciples. It means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. I encourage us over the next, I don't know, year, I don't know, I I don't have a timetable, but just to begin praying and dreaming, what could this look like for Westgate to step out in faith and invest in this way and trusting that God will lead us as we try and follow him? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, isn't just for us. God, we praise you that it is for us and that we need it every day. We are so dependent on your grace. Lord, we have nothing apart from you. We thank you that we are not accepted by our performance for you, but by Christ's performance in our place, and that that fuels our life and hope every single day, that we never outgrow our need for your gospel. But Lord, we praise you that that message of hope is not just for us, it's for others as well. And God, we want to be faithful to making Christ known in New England. And so Lord, would it please you to guide us? Would it please you to use us? Would it please you to reveal yourself to more and more people that you might receive the glory due your name and that we and they might receive the absolute best gift under heaven, a relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.